Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. The climate crisis in North America is acute. Around 53 million people are living in drought conditions. Hurricane events have become more severe and more frequent, causing billions of dollars of damage every year. And of course, glaciers are melting at an accelerated rate. In spite of all this, the Biden administration recently greenlighted a massive drilling operation in Alaska called Project Willow, which has been described as a carbon bomb due to the incredible amounts of CO2 set to be released by it. To discuss this and the wider context, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Michael Gerard, who's the Andrew Sabin Professor of Professional Practice at Columbia Law School and founder and director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. Michael, welcome. Good to be with you. As I mentioned in in the introduction there, uh, these are troubling times for anyone who cares about the climate change question. Of course, we've just had the most recent report from the um, UNFCC about the degree to which climate change may even be irreversible at one and a half degrees. And in the face of what appears to be governments failing to take the appropriate action, you and other lawyers around the world are seeing if this can be confronted in a litigation context. So could you perhaps say a little bit for the unfamiliar listener about the idea of climate change law and the role of litigation? So we maintain a database of all the climate litigation around the world. We've counted about 2,100 lawsuits that have been brought around the world on climate change. Now, not all of them are seeking to hasten the fight against climate change. Some of them are going in the other direction. But what we've seen, especially in the last five years or so, especially outside the United States, is lawsuits that are successfully uh, persuading courts to require national governments to take stronger action on climate change. We've seen that in the Netherlands, in Germany, France, Brazil, Nepal, quite a number of countries around the world where the courts are really requiring governments to act more aggressively on climate change. This is obviously a a pioneering element of, of sort of modern law practice. Are there any cases yet demonstrated where a case has been brought against a government, a government has lost that case, and then a a major sort of policy change has, has had to be implemented as a result? Uh, Yes, the most famous of these cases was called Urgenda Foundation against Kingdom of the Netherlands, uh, where the Supreme Court of the Netherlands um, ruled that the pledge that the country had made as part of the Paris Climate Agreement was too weak, uh, that it needed to step up and and reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions to a greater extent. And the government has been acting on that. Likewise, in in Germany, the federal courts in Germany found that the government was not uh, doing enough. And and a similar uh, rulings from in a number of cases in France. Uh, So that has actually happened. I want to talk a bit about uh, the situation in your own country. Many people will recall that uh, one of the election pledges made by President Biden was that there would be no uh, drilling on federal land. And I think there's a, there's a recording of him saying, period, 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 just in case you, you weren't quite sure what he meant. And yet this uh, famous, maybe I could say notorious, Project Willow, which will be in Alaska, was recently green-lighted. Is that then an opening 
for litigation in the U.S. context? The litigation is already open. <laughs> there, yeah. uh, you know, there's been litigation about that particular project for years, and when President Biden made the disappointing announcement that he was uh, going to allow the the Willow Project. Uh, there was new litigation started. Now, it's a complicated legal situation because the company involved, Chevron, has a lease from the Bureau of Land Management to do oil drilling there. They've had that lease for years, hmm. and that gives them certain rights. Uh, so any denial would also end up in court brought by the oil company. President Biden is also in a tough situation because he has a very narrow majority in the Senate, uh, 51 uh, Democrats and one or two of the of the senators, uh, especially Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, is shaky on this. And so Biden has to do a lot, of, a lot to try to mollify uh, Manchin, which I think is also uh, an element here. Uh, but anything that administrations in the U.S. do on climate change in one direction or the other will end up in court. Yeah. And you mentioned Joe Manchin there. And of course, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, you know, he represents West Virginia, which has a history of coal mining. And, and some people have also pointed to his own sort of personal involvement in that industry. Do you think that Biden's uh, change of heart is in any way affected by the the global situation? And I'm thinking particularly uh, events in Europe, the war in Ukraine, which has perhaps emphasized the need for countries to have a measure of energy independence. There's no question that the Ukraine war has changed the global energy situation. It has uh, meant that the U.S. Uh, is especially eager to export liquefied natural gas to Europe. Um, there are uh, several new LNG export terminals that uh, have either just opened or are under construction. It's it's made it more difficult to address the climate situation as aggressively as, as we had hoped. Uh, the G7 meeting that just concluded led to a communique uh, in which energy security seems to be taking first place in, in front of uh, climate change. And yet one could argue that, of course, the ultimate energy security would be to uh, invest in renewable energies and not be reliant on, on global hydrocarbon exports and imports. Of course, both renewables and energy efficiency. What, what we have seen uh, coming out of uh, the war is a tremendous upsurge in heat pumps, which are a, an excellent way to use less energy and still provide the same heating. Um, it, it, it's largely a matter of pace and, and scale. How quickly can we scale up energy efficiency and renewables? And that, that may happen uh, at a somewhat slower pace than, uh, than exporting LNG. However, each of these LNG terminals costs many billions of dollars and its owners wanted to keep on operating for a long time. Sure. Um, with with this project Willow, um, I mean, I, I I mentioned in the introduction, there's this idea of it being a carbon bomb, and that this sort of the the long term implications of it possibly making it almost impossible for the U.S. to meet certain commitments it has made on climate targets. Is is that the in in simplest terms, the basis for a legal claim that it that it, it is impossible for the government to maintain its own commitments, or, or are there more complexities? I'm sure there are more, but are, are there is is there a different fundamental argument? Uh, yeah, the U.S. climate 
commitments are not really legally binding. Uh, the U.S. has not passed a congressional statute that sets those commitments in stone. There are things that were uh, set forth by President Biden, but uh, we know that uh, when Donald Trump was in office, he revoked the U.S. commitment. So the the legal issues around the the Willow Project are more on the details of environmental review and and leasing and so forth. But let me just say that, yeah, it's called a, a climate bomb. There are lots of climate bombs that are out there. Um, uh, this is not one project that's going to tip us over the edge. Now, maybe we've already tipped over the edge, but the project is important, but in it in itself, it does not make it a, uh, a game changer. And, and of course, equally important to restricting the supply of fossil fuels is to restrict the demand for fossil fuels. Uh, the great bulk of all petroleum goes to motor vehicles, and a central part of the effort has to be the switching over to electric vehicles as quickly as we can, as well as uh, improving mass transit and other ways to reduce the amount of, of vehicle, vehicle miles traveled. Is, is there a role for legal action in that context, in terms of, of as you say, changing, changing demand as, as well as changing the supply? So the principal uh, jobs are with the regulators. Uh, so the in the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration set the fuel economy uh, and vehicle emission standards. The Department of Energy sets energy efficiency standards for appliances and so forth. Uh, where the courts come in is is challenges to those rules and trying to uh, defend them. Uh, but it's difficult for, uh, without the, a basis in statute or regulation, to have the courts try to uh, require a reduction in demand. So you, you still need a government to take the initial step to say that there's a minimum standard here, there's a minimum expectation, effectively. That's right. Yeah, we also have action in the private sector, uh, of course. There are various private efforts at encouraging energy efficiency in buildings. Uh, but the, the most important uh, factors here are having government regulations that require uh, greater efficiency. People will be well aware, of course, of the U.S. legal structure and, and the existence of a Supreme Court in, in which the, you know, the justices are appointed on a political basis, and the fact that at the moment the Supreme Court is heavily dominated by Republican appointees. Do you think that has any impact on the possibilities for success? Is the partisanship that's seen on some other legal questions present in, in this debate? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, last summer, the Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called West Virginia versus EPA, which constrained to a certain extent EPA's ability to regulate uh, emissions from coal-fired power plants. And we're not sure uh, beyond that, but uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has become something of an impediment to the strongest possible action in the U.S. We've talked a lot about this context of focusing on governmental and, and sort of uh, state or federal agencies. What is the potential role and benefit that could be drawn from legal action against private businesses, and particularly if we're talking about the sort of the huge global oil and gas firms? 
So there are quite a few lawsuits that are brought against uh, the um, uh, against companies in the fossil fuel industry. One very prominent uh, case is called Mayu Defense versus Royal Dutch Shell, in which a trial-level court of the Netherlands ordered Royal Dutch Shell to reduce its emissions, not just those of the corporation, but also of its subsidiaries, not only those in the Netherlands, but globally. And very importantly, not only those from its direct emissions, like leakage from its oil wells, uh, but also of its customers. This decision is now under appeal in the, in the Dutch courts, but if it holds up, it's going to be uh, extremely important, and we may see similar lawsuits in, in other countries. In the United States, uh, there have been efforts um, going back to 2004 to hold uh, oil and gas companies uh, responsible for climate change. The most recent wave of these, which has been going on for the last six years, has all been held up uh, in the courts on the question of whether they belong in federal court or state court. Uh, the plaintiffs, for various reasons, all want to be in state court. The oil companies all want to be in federal court. Um, two weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court let stand uh, uh, several decisions to say they belong in state court. So I think we'll see a lot more activity in in those cases in the United States in the couple of years to come. And for those who are less familiar with, with the structure of, of the U.S. legal system, what's the significance of that state court versus federal court argument? Does that, it, it makes litigation easier in some way? Well, there was a, a, a U.S. Supreme Court decision in 2011, uh, which made it tougher for the federal courts to take this kind of case. Uh, the, the state courts may not have the same constraint. Uh, in some of the states, that may be a more sympathetic venue. And so uh, there are a number of these legal reasons why the, uh, the plaintiffs, who in these cases are mostly states and cities, uh, all want to be in state court. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the wider sort of international and, and global picture. And you've mentioned, of course, some, some case studies from the Netherlands and one or two other countries. Um, there are uh, some countries notably Pacific Island states, and I, I'm, I'm aware, I think, that you've, you've worked in some cases for the Marshall Islands. There are some countries whose entire existence is at risk from rising sea levels. Is there anything that those countries can do on, on an international legal basis, either to somehow to, to seek to reverse this tendency or to find some kind of compensation for their entire populations? So one of the endangered Pacific island nations, Vanuatu, pressed the effort to get in front of the International Court of Justice with a question of the obligation of the major developed countries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and possibly take other actions. Uh, in order to get before the International Court of Justice in The Hague, it was necessary to obtain a majority vote of the members of the United Nations General Assembly. About a month ago, they succeeded. Quite remarkably, there was a consensus vote with no dissent to send this case to the International Court of Justice. So that court, which will be hearing this case probably next year, doesn't have the ability to issue a binding decision in a case like this, but it could declare legal obligations that the domestic courts uh, in several countries will pick up on and use to press the wrong governments. Um, this is mostly about 
reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's tougher to obtain compensation. There really isn't a clear legal pathway for the small island states to obtain uh, financial compensation for uh, the grievous injury that uh, climate change is, is causing them. That's more a matter of international politics and diplomacy. This case that you, you mentioned with Vanuatu, obviously the International Court of Justice, as you say, can't issue a binding judgment on another state, but presumably it would have a lot of influence. But at the same time, as we've seen in the case of the Biden administration, but perhaps much more severely so in the case of the Trump administration, you need buy-in at that political level. And it feels that the, uh, among Western countries, this uh, politicization of the climate change question is particularly acute in the US context. It, it certainly exists in Australia, but you don't see it so much in Europe. What, what do you think explains this kind of left-right politicization of the climate change question in, in your country? So, of course, climate change is, is far from being the only issue where there is a stark left-right division. Um, and there are many, many theories about it. Part of it uh, traditionally is, uh, is distaste of big government, that if you're going to take climate change seriously, there's a major role for government. If you don't believe much in government regulation, you don't want to um, be regulating climate change as well as a lot of other things. Uh, there's also uh, the, the politics with is the, the, the fossil fuel industry uh, contributes a lot of money to, to campaigns. It's very politically influential. The way the Constitution was written in 1789 gives a disproportionate power to uh, rural states with relatively low population, many of which produce a lot of oil and gas and coal. And, and so there are many aspects to the U.S. Uh, political system that combine uh, to to make uh, uh, climate change a, a partisan issue today. Uh, it, let me just say, it wasn't always that way. Um, the major environmental laws of the United States were uh, just about all enacted during a 20-year period between 1970 and 1990. And they were all enacted with very strong report uh, support from Republicans as well as Democrats. In 2008, the uh, uh, major presidential candidates, John McCain for the Republicans and Barack Obama for the Democrats, both supported climate legislation. They both supported cap and trade. It's more recently than that, that we've had this um, uh, partisan division on climate change, but that partisan division has grown wider and wider with each passing federal election. And the interesting thing, coming at it from a UK perspective, where we certainly have very uh, partisan politics, but on climate change, there, there tends not to be so much of a division. But the other thing that strikes me, and, and I'm, I, I wonder whether there's anything in your own, your own sort of life history, because I've read a bit about your background, is that it seems to me that the, some of the parts of the US that are most heavily affected by climate change are also the parts of the US where politicians seem to be rejecting its existence. And, and, and that just, there's a sort of cognitive dissonance there. It's quite hard to get one's head around. Well, you're certainly right about that. Um, Florida, for instance, is a state that is very vulnerable to climate change uh, with, with flooding and so forth. And yet uh, the current government doesn't want to 
deal with that at all. Uh, the southern states in general tend to be more conservative, but those are the states that are going to be most heavily affected by extreme heat. Um, but there are just so many other aspects of politics going on that uh, that overwhelm the merits here, uh, that, that people are really acting against their interests with respect to climate change when they oppose action on climate change. Finally, in, in the last few minutes that, that we've got, I wanted to try to look forward a little um, because people who take an interest in, in this subject uh, want there to be this sense of, of global urgency, that time is running out, that governments need to take action. And yet, at the same time, a lot of these, these sorts of processes, including you know, the, the, the legal system, moves at, at a fairly sluggish place, often for reasons that are, that are very valid. But what is your sense of the speed at which people such as yourself can take these kinds of actions versus the rate of change in the climate crisis and whether or not uh, we're on a trajectory that takes us where we want to be? We are not on the trajectory that is taking us where we want to be. There are some encouraging signs, um, um, more on the uh, technological front. There are very rapid uh, developments in uh, improving the efficiency and reducing the costs of wind and solar and storage and so forth, electric vehicles, batteries, all the, the technologies that we need in order to uh, address the problem are really developing very quickly. And the U.S. did last year pass an important law called the Inflation Reduction Act, which makes at least hundreds of billions of dollars uh, available for that. I think we're, we're having the greatest success there on the technology more than on the on the politics, um, but the the curves of emissions and so forth are not heading in the the directions that that they need to. And if you had to sort of name one legal case, one one litigation or, or other action which you feel could have the greatest impact, which would that be? Which what should people be watching out for? I think this Dutch case against Royal Dutch Shell uh, is very important, and the world is really going to be watching uh, what happens there. Great. Well, we'll be watching that case. And Michael Gerard, thank you so much for joining us today in The Bunker. Thank you. The Bunker is free to download, but if you like what you're hearing and want to make sure there's more where this came from, then you can back us on Patreon for as little as £3 and help us to keep bringing new podcasts. I'm Arthur Snell, and thanks for listening. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Jade Bailey and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.